Well, today we are uh, taking a look at two of Jesus' miracles. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. And the story of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. And there is a lot going on in, in these stories. Um, on one level, they're, they're just great stories. Uh, wonderful stories that, that make us really wrestle with what kind of world we live in and whether or not we believe that we live in a wor- world where these kinds of things can happen. That God can do and perform miracles that are beyond reason or scientific explanation or human ability. We can read these stories and just ask, do we, do we believe that we live in a world where these kinds of things can happen? Where God moves in and makes impossible things happen. At another level, these these stories uh, give us a lot of of symbolism and hints and clues about who Jesus is and about what he's about in his ministry. Um, There are lots of allusions to the Old Testament and to the the echoes of the Exodus story, quotations from the Psalms that that point to Jesus' divinity, symbolic meanings behind the, the, the 12 baskets of leftover food. There are lots of different layers to this story. There is uh, just genius in the way that Matthew tells this story. Um, It's it's as if he had some help writing it. And we're going to touch on some of these different layers of this story, but but today we're going to focus on the meaning of these miracles for the disciples. What these stories can teach us about what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. One of the things that made me me wonder about these stories this week as I was first reading them is that both of them seem really unnecessary. No one is being healed of sickness or blindness or being raised from the dead. Uh, The story of the feeding of the 5,000, all those, those... 5,000 or more people, they could have gone into the villages and got their own meal. Like, Jesus didn't have to do this. And then Jesus walks on water? What is that about? Is he just, is he just showing off? Or is there something more going on here? It seems to me that both of these miracles are very much for the 12 disciples. They reveal to the disciples who Jesus is, and they teach the disciples about what it means to follow him. So as we've been doing, uh, as we have been throughout this series on Matthew, we're going to look at these stories through the lens of discipleship. What do these stories teach us about what it means to follow Jesus? In Jesus' ministry, he taught his disciples along the way. As they were going and living life, he taught them. Uh, The disciples didn't sign up for for a class and show up on a Tuesday at at 9 o'clock and and sit in a classroom for an hour and listen to him and then go and do their homework and then come back to the teacher later. The disciples lived with Jesus, and, and they watched him, and he taught them along the way. And this is what we see in this story. In this story, the disciples learn some things about what it means to follow Jesus in times of sorrow and in times of stress. In times of sorrow and in times of stress. 
Remember from Matthew chapter 14 that these stories all take place in a 24-hour period after Jesus and the disciples heard that John the Baptist had his head chopped off by Herod the Tetrarch, the wannabe king, right? They are grieving. They're scared. They're tired. They're facing this this world that has leaders in it uh, who are more concerned with themselves rather than the people, They're facing a world where it's possible for men like their teacher, men like John the Baptist, men like Jesus, to be executed for really no reason at all. And Jesus, through his example and through his guidance, in this time of sorrow and in this time of stress and worry, he teaches them about what it means to follow him in those times. Jesus wants to teach us as his disciples to be a particular kind of people in the world. A people who are at rest. A people who know who is in control. A people who are a non-anxious presence in a world that is going mad. A people who are not afraid. And not afraid because there's nothing to be afraid of. There's plenty to be afraid of. But people who aren't afraid because we know who we are and we know who we belong to and we know who is in control of it all. So we're going to look at these stories through the eyes of the disciples. These stories reveal to the disciples who Jesus is and reveals to the disciples and to us what it means to follow him in times of sorrow and stress. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And I'm going to to read the text to you. a few verses at a time, and then to retell the story and to try to get ourselves into, into where Jesus was and to where the disciples were at this time. Matthew chapter 14, I'll begin reading at verse 13 and 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, that is, that John had been beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus' cousin, his friend, someone he probably grew up with as a kid, had just been executed, and Jesus needs some time alone, and he goes out into a boat by himself. And as he's floating along, he sees that there's a huge crowd of people that have somehow discovered where he is, and they're on the shore waiting for him. And Jesus, when he sees this crowd, he does what Jesus does. He has compassion on them. He loves them. He goes to the crowd, and he begins to heal the sick people there. I want to suggest to you that in this moment of Jesus' grief and his sorrow, we have something at Broadway, here at Broadway Christian Church that we need to pay attention to. Because we are an active church. There are many of you who actively respond to the needs of your neighbors and to our city. You work hard enough for God that sometimes you get tired. You push and you sacrifice your time and your energy for other people because you know that that's what God calls you to do. And even when you're tired and you're wore out, you push and you go through pushing through that pain and that uh, sorrow because you know that that's what good Christians do. But what do we do when we have moments like this? 
when we have moments when we are grieving in our own life, when we are following falling apart, when we are stressed, when we are full of sorrow because of something that's happening in our life, what do we do? Are we called just to put our heads down like good Christians and ignore any needs that we have? Do we ignore our pain? Do we tell ourselves that there are so many others out there who have it so much worse than I do? Just get over it and move on and help these people who are hurting. This is an important question for us here as an active church, a church that wants to meet the needs of people around us. So what we see here is that Jesus, in this time of sorrow, he needed time alone. When Jesus heard about what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. The disciples let him go off in this boat all by himself. They see that their teacher is hurting. Jesus will walk to the other side of the lake. Take the boat and go on your own. There are some people who never stop working, never stop serving other people because they don't want to stop. They don't want to rest and to pay attention to whatever pain is going on in their own heart. But Jesus himself, he pushed out into the lake where it was quiet, and he rested, and he spent time with the Father. There are a lot of people, a lot of us, a a lot of you, who are rightly, and because of Jesus, so deeply concerned for the needs of other people uh, that you, you ignore this quiet solitude that you need to rest. And we call that faithfulness. We call it faithfulness to work and to work and to work and to serve and to serve and to serve and to not to pause and to rest when it's the example of our master in a time of sorrow to get away and to be quiet alone with the Father. It's in that relationship with the Father where we find rest, where we find healing. It's in that relationship with the Father where the Father increases the capacity of our hearts to love other people. It's where we learn what Paul says in Corinthians, that the same comfort that we received in our affliction, we can then pass on to others. So if you're going through a season like this, when do you know when it's time to hop out of the boat? When do you know when it's time to to get back into serving others? You've taken time away. And I think Matthew gives a hint here about what compelled Jesus, because he could have saw the crowd and rode the other direction and gone back out into the lake. He could have done that. And we see in Jesus's life, there were many times where he left the crowds. He had no problems leaving crowds disappointed so that he could go away on his own. But there was something in this moment that made him move towards them. It says, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. 
want to say there's at least two bad reasons to step out of the boat and to go back into serving after you're going through a time of pain or a time of sorrow. One is, is avoidance of your own pain. You're hurting and you're struggling and maybe you just feel this urge so that you don't have to think about it anymore. That, that time of, of quiet is just too hard to deal with in your own self. And so you think, you know what, I'll just go out and do something. That's not a good reason to get out of the boat. Another good reason to, another bad reason to get out of the boat is obligation. I have to go do this. If I don't do it, then nobody else will. I know I'm struggling right now. I'm hurting right now. I'm in pain. But if I don't go and do this, then nobody else will. Obligation. That is not a good reason to get out of the boat. We step out of the boat and back into ministry only after God has done a work in us that causes us to have compassion and love for the people that we are serving. That our, our work, our service to others must come not because we are avoiding our own pain and not because we feel some sort of, sort of obligation, but because we are compelled by love for God and for those who are, we are serving. I want to suggest to you that this is what Jesus describes as his easy yoke. That that when we take on his yoke, of course, there are times when ministry and service to other is hard and it feels uh, really difficult and it's challenging and we come up against all kinds of roadblocks. But the easy yoke of Jesus is that we are moved by the love that God has given to us to move toward them and to serve, not out of some sort of obligation that, that Pastor Ryan or somebody else gave to me that I should go and do this thing. We are called to be motivated by love. Matthew chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. As evening approached, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves And he gave them to his disciples. That should sound familiar to you. And the disciples then gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So the disciples are watching what's happening. They know that their teacher is tired, that he is in grief and sorrow, and he sees that he's been healing these people throughout the day. And they know that really all Jesus wanted to do was to be alone. And so they tell Jesus, hey, it's getting late. The people are getting hungry. Why don't you send them off to get some food? You can be alone because we're pretty tired too. And Jesus, within hours of hearing about this terrible tragedy that happened to his cousin, he sees this as an important moment for discipleship, an important moment to teach his disciples about what it means to follow him. And he says to them, 
you feed them. Uh, Jesus, this isn't a good idea. There are more than 5,000 people here, and we have five loaves and two fish. This is our snack for later. The disciples respond in exactly the same way that you and I would. And the disciples make the same mistake that all of us make. We focus on what we don't have rather than on what we do have. We see a problem in front of us, and we're only able to see our own human solutions and plans for the problem. There's not enough. Money and human resources are uh, limited. But this not enough mentality only takes into account what we can manage and control. It looks at the resources that we have rather than looking to the one who made the resources in the first place. The bread and the fish were created by Jesus and through Jesus at the very beginning. And he can do something with this five loaves and two fish. And to their credit, the disciples give it to him. If this is my snack later, I'm not so sure I'm giving it to Jesus. But they give it to him. Five loaves and two fish. Here you go, Jesus. Jesus takes what the disciples have. He has everyone sit down. He takes the bread. He looks up. He thanks God. He breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples. And because the disciples gave it to him, the disciples now get to administer a miracle. Jesus now invites them to participate in his work, participate in his miracle that he's doing. But notice there's something very important about this miracle. Jesus does not simply snap his fingers and make bread and fish appear. Jesus uses what has been offered to him. Jesus uses what is offered. And this is the key to this story, the key to what Jesus is teaching them about discipleship. Jesus takes the little bit that there is, and he does more with it than they could do on their own. Jesus does a miracle by providing more bread and fish that is there, but the resource had to be offered to him to use. It had to be placed in his hands to use it. And so the lesson for the disciples here and for us is to offer what we have. In the face of our challenges, we are invited to place our gifts and our time and our money and whatever resources that we have into his hands. And so what gift do you have? What resource do you have to bring? And there are some of you who don't believe that you have very much to offer. You don't believe you're talented. You think you're too old or you're too young. You think that your experience is not enough. You think that you don't have enough time, whatever it is. All of us have our insecurities about how little we have to offer. But Jesus is not concerned about how little you have, but whether you are willing to give what you have. So what is your bread? What do you have to offer him? Because what Jesus does is he takes their bread and the fish in their unbelief and in their suspicion, and he breaks it and he does a good thing through it, far more than they could have done on their own. In the hands of the disciples, it was a snack for 13 people. In the hands of Jesus, it was a feast for more than 5,000 people. Chapter 20, or verse 22. I'm going to read through verse 31. After this, 
Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, that's sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? After dinner is over, Jesus has the disciples get back into the boat and head back to the other side of the lake, and Jesus dismisses the crowds, tells them to go home. And then he spends some time again alone. This is less than 24 hours after he's heard the news of John the Baptist. He still needs time alone with the Father. And as the sun is going down, he is left alone by himself, time and quiet with the Father, grieving, asking, seeking direction. And then in the fourth watch of the night, so somewhere between maybe 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. until 3 a.m., The disciples are still rowing that boat nine hours later. This is supposed to be a two-hour journey across the lake. Nine hours they've been rowing from the time they were dismissed sometime after dinner until three or four or five or six o'clock in the morning. They are still rowing. The point here is they are exhausted. They are tired. This has been a very long 24 hours. And as they're so exhausted and tired, they see Jesus now walking on the water, and they believe he's a ghost of some kind. Uh, Apparently, there there was a a legend, an urban myth at this time, that people who died by drowning would come back as ghosts who would walk along the water. And they weren't the, the Casper, the friendly ghost kind of ghost. They were ghosts who were not happy about drowning, okay? And so they were scared of these ghosts, The disciples are scared, they're tired, they're exhausted, and Jesus calls out to them in the storm, don't be afraid, take courage, it is me. And Peter does what Peter does. He asks Jesus, if it's you, let me come on out onto the water. Who even thinks to do that (laughs) except Peter? Tired, exhausted, stressed out Peter asks to come out onto the water, and Jesus says, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk on the water toward Jesus. But because of the wind and the waves, Peter gets scared, and he begins to sink. And Peter calls out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does. And they get back into the boat, and Jesus asks Peter, you don't have a whole lot of faith, Peter. Why do you doubt? And then the storm calms, and the disciples, for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, They worship Jesus. I'm not sure there's a more perfect picture 
of a sincere and earnest follower of Jesus than Peter right here in this story. Like in so many of the stories, Peter in the Gospels represents us in the way that we are so often, full of faith and doubting at the same time, believing and not believing within seconds of one another, completely focused on Jesus one moment and distracted by the next. Now, there are are some sermons that get pretty down on Peter in this story. If only he would have kept his eyes on Jesus. Fair enough, but the guy had just been walking on water for a minute, so it's not bad. It's a bold move. It was a risk. It was a risk. It was an act of faith to even ask Jesus, let me come out on the water with you. So as we think about Peter in this story, I want us to remember as followers of Jesus to be willing to take a risk. Think about the stories that we tell our children in Sunday school and that we read to them before they go to bed at night. David standing up to Goliath. Daniel in the lion's den. Abraham going to a place that he didn't know about. Esther standing up to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. These are all stories of men and women who took risks, who demonstrated courage because they believed in God. All people who were flawed, all of them made mistakes, all of them exemplified at one time or another a lack of faith, but all of them in one way or another took a risk. They acted in faith and in courage. And these are the kinds of stories that we want our children to hear because we want our children to grow up to be men and women who are strong and courageous in the faith, men and women who walk with God and who are willing to take risks in order to bring God glory. These are stories that we want to fill our kids' imaginations with. But friends, these stories are not for kids. They're for you, not only for kids, they're for you. When did these stories become just kids' stories? As we grow up, it seems that our our faith becomes less and less about being courageous and taking risks, and more and more about being safe, safe, how much we should tithe, how much we should spend our time, what we should volunteer for or not volunteer for. Where did courage and risk go? as we got older and grew up in the faith, or maybe grew down in the faith. I don't know. When did these just become children's stories? In this story, Peter takes a risk. He is both full of faith and doubting at the same time. But because of that, he gets to have an experience that no one else ever has. He experienced God helping him do an impossible thing because he was willing to take a risk and even to fail a bit while doing it. Friends, when you take a risk, you will fail in one way or another. Your faith will falter along the way. You'll mess up. But aren't you grateful that Jesus works through people who have a little bit of faith? And he rescues us and he saves us when we fall. It's what he did for Peter and it's what he'll do for you if you take a risk. Verses 32 and 33. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, 
saying, truly, you are the son of God. The last discipleship lesson is remember who you are trusting. This is the first time the disciples worship Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. Throughout the gospel up to this point, they've been amazed by him. They've committed their lives to him. They've given praise to God when they've seen him do amazing things. They've watched him heal people. But here they worship him. They offer Jesus something that they know that only God can receive. And Jesus receives it. The story of Jesus walking on the water is a revelation of who Jesus is. Matthew, as I said earlier, he was a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. A brilliant storyteller with divine help. It's a great combination for a story like this. This story reveals to the disciples and reveals to us that Jesus was more than a great teacher. He was more than the smartest person that has ever lived. He was more than a miracle worker. He was more than a Messiah. He is all of those things, and he is God in the flesh. The creator of heaven and earth climbed back into that boat with Peter. And they worshiped him. Throughout the Old Testament, there is only one who has power over the sea, and it is God the creator. Job says this, His, that is God, his wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heaven and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Psalm 77, the water saw you, God, the water saw you and writhed, the very depths were convulsed, the clouds poured down water, the heavens resounded with thunder, your arrows flashed back and forth, your thunder was heard in the whirlwind, your lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and quaked, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Psalm 107. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and he stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in, the trouble, in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Throughout the Old Testament, there is only one who has the power over the sea, and it is God, the creator. And then there's another example of Matthew revealing 
Maybe subtly, maybe not so subtly, I'm not sure. But right in the middle of this passage, Jesus and Peter, when they're having this conversation, Jesus says to them, take courage, it is I. And in Greek, that is ego eimi, which is I am. Take courage, I am. The name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush was I am. When Moses asked God for his name before going to lead God's people out of Egypt, God said, my name is I am. And in this story of Jesus rescuing his disciples from a storm, Jesus says the same thing about himself. And Matthew puts it right in the middle of this story. There's 90 Greek words before that phrase and 90 Greek words after that phrase. And right in the middle, I am. It's like Matthew had some help writing this or something. Friends, this story reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we need to remember who we are following. We are following the creator of heaven and earth. You are following the one who made you. He is the one who knows you and designed you. He knows what he designed you for and what is best for you. And not only the creator of the universe and the stars and the Orion and the bear and the Pleiades, not only that, but he's also the lover of your soul. The one who knows the innermost parts of you, who knows your thoughts better than you do, the one you can't hide from even when you hide from yourself. He is the one who knows you you for who you are at the deepest places of your heart, both the good and the glory of who you are, and also the bent and twisted desires of your heart. He knows all of that, and he loves you. He is the creator of heaven and earth, and he is the lover of your soul. And that's who you follow. So it can be a great encouragement when our, our brothers and sisters in Christ tell us to not be afraid to take courage, to not fear. But when the creator of heaven and earth and the lover of our soul says, don't be afraid, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus is seeking as his disciples to make us a particular kind of people in the world. People who are at rest, even in times of sorrow and pain, A people who are non-anxious in a world that is going crazy. People who don't fear. People who can be at rest. People who have the courage to take the time to look at their own hurt and their own pain and allow God to heal that so that they can then turn and serve others. Out of a place of love and compassion and not out of obligation. Jesus is seeking to make us people of courage in times of our stress. People who are willing to take risks and to fail because we know that we are following Jesus who can reach out and save us and that he will. And because we know that we are following the creator of heaven and earth and the lover of our souls. And we can trust him. We can trust him. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you. And that you revealed to your disciples some 2,000 years ago. And that you reveal to us today uh, that you are our provider. That you 
can take the little that we have and to make it more than we ever could imagine. We thank you that you show us that in our own sorrow and pain that we can rest and that we are not the savior of the world, that we can rest and that you in that resting want to do a saving work in us. We thank you that in our, our stress, in our worry, in our anxiety, that you, you call us to take risks and that we can do that because of who you are. We thank you that you created the heavens and the earth and that you know us and that you love us. Amen.